had this dream last night that um, I was attending the 25th anniversary of The Phantom of the Opera, which indeed took place over the weekend. And we were in a theatre and Michael Crawford was going out to perform. And Michael Crawford did come on, although he didn't perform. And I said to someone, I was standing in the wings, and I said to somebody, what's Michael going to do? And they said, oh, he's, doing, he's going to play the Congol Violin Concerto. I said, I said, is he? I said, I, 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 can he play the violin? Oh, yeah, he's very, very good. Voice of the Musical. Hello, and welcome to Voice of the Musical. Here's the first part of my interview with Charles Hart, the lyricist of Phantom of the Opera. Now, although this is the third podcast of the series, it's actually the first interview that I recorded, and you can hear a little bit of audio compression at certain parts in the discussion, but I think the content is nonetheless fascinating, and I really hope you'll enjoy it. In a week where we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera, I'm very lucky to be joined today by Charles Hart, the lyricist of Phantom, the co-lyricist of Aspects of Love. Hello, Charles. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Could you tell me, perhaps, the first time when you were really bitten by a musical, what that was and what it felt like? Uh, That's quite a hard one. Um, I was exposed to opera, really, before I was exposed to musicals, and I became very interested in classical music uh, when uh, when I went to my secondary school. We had a particularly enlightened music teacher by the name of Roger Durston. Musicals were something that I think I, I, I generally resisted. I wasn't particularly drawn to them because my experience of them mainly was through television, i.e. film musicals that were broadcast routinely on television in those days, not so much nowadays. And I didn't really like them at all because they seemed so phony, so unrealistic. And um, the idea that people would be um, boating in a lake and singing with a hundred-piece orchestra behind them seemed to me absurd. So it wasn't really until I saw them in the theatre, which is where they belong, truly, um, that I became enamoured. And the first one that I, that really had an impact on me, although I was taken to a performance of Kiss Me Cake by my grandparents um, in, my, in my formative opera-going days, that did have some, uh, uh, made some impression on me. But the one that really hit me was um, Steve Sondheim's Little Night Music. I should say Steve Sondheim, Hugh Wheeler and Hal Prince's Little mm. Night Music, uh, which I happened to see because um, um, my grandmother was appearing in it. She'd taken over role of Madame Armfelt from um, Hermione Gingold in the West End production. And uh, the family dutifully went, and I was um, bowled over by this funny, intelligent, very, very musical piece. And of course, the fact that it was taking place in the theatre, and all that uh, dramatic rhetoric and uh, comedy communicated directly across the pit and into the audience, um, suddenly made the whole genre make sense for me. And so then I began exploring more. It's very interesting, isn't it, that Stephen sometimes seems to have brought a lot of people over to the world of musicals who, who might otherwise have felt that they are, in fact, a little bit light, a little bit frothy, a little bit um, lacking in kind of intellectual weight. Yes, I think he, he and Hal really brought edge to the genre when it was beginning to go kind of fuzzy and floppy and... Uh, and reminded us that it was or could be um, an adult form of entertainment and that to be entertained one didn't have to be uh, childlike. You could be entertained in a sophisticated way. What do you think that Steve Sondheim's legacy will be for the generation of new composers? It's a very tough one because there are some who will say that um, he recreated or reinvented the musical for the 20th or 21st even 
century. And there are others who take the view that it's actually the death throes, and that what he's done is put the final full stop on it, or perhaps exclamation mark. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It's a tough question, and one that I ask myself, because I write musicals. It's a tough act to follow, and probably, you know, he, he, cast, he will cast a long shadow, and it's perhaps best to avoid it altogether. I don't think musical theatre is um, a form where there's a fundamental sort of logical growth to it, where one can see uh, a natural movement in a particular direction, as you could argue is true of European classical music through the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. Um, I think it, because it's theatrical, it's a form which will rediscover itself through surprises, and those will be musical ones as well. So I suspect that the legacy of Steve Sondheim is um, do things different from Steve mm. Sondheim. In fact, I think it's a legacy that he himself has difficulty with. Yes. Where, where does he go from here? And basically, um, the answer is to revisit earlier ideas. Where do you think you got your music theatre muscle from? Well, I, I use that in the widest sense. Music theatre, opera, usually people that get involved with it at some stage find that they want to be in the, in a theatre expressing themselves. What was the first work that gave you that sense, either as a, as a viewer or as a, as a writer? Um, it's all so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a performer. Uh, uh-huh. I, when I was... Uh, yeah, at school I wanted to be... First of all, for, first of all I, I learned the violin. I thought I was going to be a violinist. Um, I then became interested in composing. I thought I was going to be a composer. My interest in music somewhat waned. I thought I was going to be an actor. I started uh, doing operettas and musical comedies. Uh, I went to university rather reluctantly to study music. Um, I appeared in a lot of shows, some of them musicals, not all of them. And then I sort of became tired of standing on a stage. And um, all through that period, I was carrying on writing music and lyrics because I couldn't find a lyricist. Mm. So, I don't know, I, I, I... I think like a lot of people who work in the theatre, I tried my hand at various things and I was better suited for some things than others. I would love to have been an opera singer, so I thought. Mm. Um, and I'm not entirely sure now whether that life wouldn't have suited me, but I, uh, you know, I have, I'm totally suited in every aspect apart from vocally <laughs> to, that, to that world. <laughs> but tell me about collaboration. You mentioned this before as to how, how an artist renews him or herself. You've collaborated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, with Howard Goodall, most recently? Most recently, I've collaborated with a composer called Jake Higgy, for whom I wrote lyrics for a duet for Kirita Kanawa and uh, Frederica von Stade. Um, but I've only spoken to Jake on, on the phone, so it's been a very long-distance collaboration. Um, in general... Um, collaboration has meant for me bouncing a lot of ideas off the person I'm working with, but then basically going off and doing the thing alone, mm. which is not what it means to everybody. Some composers and lyricists work very jointly, often in the same room. Um, I think the Gershwin brothers did. Um, they would hole up in a hotel for a few weeks mm. and write a show. And uh, I'm a little bit more private about it than that, mm. and I tend to want to get the lyric right and typed up and looking nice uh, before the composer starts interfering with it. Um, if I do the lyrics first. 
the other way around is uh, slightly more messy and interesting in a different way. That's the way that Andrew works. Mm. Always with music first. So what are the particular challenges of writing lyrics to an existing melody or an existing musical structure? Well, obviously you're straight-jacketed, really down to the last syllable as to what you can say or how long you have in which to say it. Um, Generally, in musical theatre, it is the convention that for every note there is a syllable. That is not always the case, but frequently is. So at least you don't have to think about structure. That's Mm. done for you. Mm. So in one way it facilitates, it removes choices, but of course with the removal of choices there come restraints. And so long as the music is basically suiting, in your view, what you want to say at that particular moment in the drama, and remember in musical theatre it's all about context. It's not like writing a song and expressing yourself. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Um... Uh, so long as the music more is more or less has parity with the um, emotional landscape or the dramatic thrust, then um, you know thing. Then it's just a question of working out what words will fit. Sometimes you know you find that there are only a very small number of things that will fit a given musical phrase elegantly uh, that say what you want them to say. So. It's 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 a slightly it's a different challenge from the one of writing words first. It's 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 a little bit more like doing a crossword, for which there's no right answer. Mm. One of the purposes of this podcast is to look at technique for writers of musical theatre. Do you have any guiding principles as a lyricist? No, I don't. But I have a system. I have systems that I nearly always use. Um, I hate working, well, like all authors, I don't like the blank page very much. So I don't use a blank page. I I always write on lined paper and I draw a line down the middle of it usually so that I have a sense of imposing myself on a piece of paper before I begin. Um, I like there to be a ruled margin so I can write notes in the margin and so on. You know, these are, but these, these are idiosyncratic. They're personal things that I do that help me and they might help other people as well. Um, Sometimes I'll make a page of notes separately from my first lyrical ideas because they will help to sort of focus me. Um, phrases that spring to mind or lists of kind, the kind of vocabulary I might be using uh, or references or sources that I could go to, um, a list of possible titles, those sorts of things. But, but, but of course, in, in adopting all these systems, I think it's very important not to throw out the thing that makes the creative process enjoyable, which is the element, the, the degree to which you're daydreaming. You know, you're sitting mm-hmm. with a piece of, mu- piece of um, possibly a piece of music, certainly a piece of paper, um, fantasizing. You know, um, staring into space and seeing what comes into the space that you've created in your mind. Uh, you know, I think there are there are there are rules that I apply without really thinking about them, which include questions that one has to answer like does it sing will this sound okay is this ugly is this cliched um have i said it before a lot you know there's a there's a there's a very good list that george orwell produced for um as guideline for um guidelines for writing prose specifically journalism um 
but I would refer anyone to that list. Um, it's ten points, and I can't remember all of them, but one of them is never write a phrase which you're used to seeing in print. Mm -hmm. And although that's a little bit too rigid for me, and particularly for any lyricist, basically Orwell's entire list is, is, is um, uh, a message to be vigilant about what you're writing. I write with very, very short lines. One of the reasons I draw a line down the centre of the A4 paper is because it compels me to write short lines. And although that may not be the way they look when they're eventually typed, it, um, it makes me concentrate on very small blocks of sound because when lyrics are sung, unless they're very fast, they're usually significantly slower than speech. And that means that you can't have very long clauses because the ear doesn't pick them up. There's a, de a danger of becoming over-poetic and convoluted. Uh, well, either over-poetic or over-prosaic, one or the other. Mm. You can, uh, Yeah, exactly. If there's a long way to go between the first and the last word of the thought, then the likelihood is that the listener will lose their way. There's a lot spoken about perfect rhyme and also about the way you, you one stresses words. Mm. Are there any other in quotes, rules that perhaps are overlooked, perhaps because they're harder to to codify, harder to nail? Um, there's something which sometimes I think refers to as identities, which are very hard to spot, um, which is where, um, this is for the real pedant, where um, two words sound as though they rhyme but don't. Um, an example would be resist and exist, because the the rhyming syllable actually begins with the same sound, which is a Z sound. Rizist and egzist. Um, and it's quite hard to spot those. I'm guilty of a few of them, certainly. There's one in Phantom of the Opera, which is, I, there's a howler, and I hear it every time, and I can't do anything about it. <laughs> uh, where I, I've rhymed, uh, he's a funny sort of spectre to expect a large retainer. And spectre and expectre mm. are not different sounds. They're identical. Mm. So it's not a rhyme. But it whizzes by so fast, it sounds a bit as though it is. Um, and and does, th sorry. does the ear hear that as a less of a rhyme than simply an, in, an internal bounce, perhaps that, perhaps, that makes it feel less perhaps less on the nose. I just hear it as a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was another one that I did, and I took it out. Uh, there's, there's a line, there's a line, the music of the night has a line, um, um, softly, deftly, music shall caress you, hear it, feel it, hear it, hear it, feel it, can't remember, secretly possess you, which is fine. But originally I wrote, uh, music shall surround you, hear it, feel it, closing in around you, and around and surround our identities, mm. they're not rhymes. And um, to my complete horror, um, someone at the 25th anniversary sang the old version. I didn't even, knew it. I didn't even know it was extant anymore. I think, I think, I think Ramin sang surround around. Anyway, I don't know where he got it. <laughs> you um, thought it was going to be a, a, a gift, gift for you. It may be, yes. Presenting you with the ur text. Yes, and in fact I was horrified. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, um, you also have to consider um, in English, um, there are some things where there's a slight question mark about how a word stresses. Um, you know, infinity, to my mind, rhymes with vicinity. But you can, under certain circumstances, cheat it and have it rhyme with single-syllable E mm. rhymes. 
we shall see in this vicinity. Mm. You, you know, if you if you if it's set with the right kind of music, then you could probably get away with that. But it's not something I would generally do. Yes, because I think it's much more elegant elegant to say vicinity infinity. You know, it, the important thing is to make it make it seem intentional. Mm. So you know, if you're going to if you're going to at the end of a line put in a rhyming position the words um, soft and deft, fine because they're consonant rhymes and it sounds deliberate. It doesn't sound like a bad rhyme. Mm. But soft and cough would, to my ear, just sound like a piece of incompetent rhyming. Mm. Um, uh, so it's, it's very much a question of taste, you know. Mm. And, and style as well, because there are, there, are, there are lyrical styles where half rhymes are so much part of the fabric of that style that you don't... Uh, worry about it, you know. It's, in fact, it can sound sort of prissy and overwritten if the idiom is poppy and you're using very musical theatre rigidity about your rhymes. It can sound just wrong. Mm. Um, so it's all a question of, of, of discretion. How proprietorial do you feel about your lyrics once you've given them to a composer? Um, so long as they're not misrepresented or mauled, not particularly. You know, uh, and I'm open to suggestion or improvement. Mm. It's a pity sometimes if you go to the trouble of constructing an elegant rhyming scheme or, you know, you've matched two verses very nicely with one another, if the composer kind of rides roughshod over that. Mm. I'm inclined to try to um, guide them. So I just put, want to put notes in the margins with, the, you know, certain words ringed. Uh, yeah, I've, I've not often gone to that extent, but, uh, but I, what I will do is, by the arrangement of the line breaks, try to convey um, that that's what I'm doing, you know, that this verse equals that verse. And I will, um, I'll, I'll mark things as verse one, verse two, chorus, this sort of thing. Um, I have been known very, very occasionally to write a rhythm in the margin, as if, as if, as if to remind myself, but in fact to hint to them because of course as a lyricist you, you also have the capacity to find, uh, find new structures both yeah. in terms of rhythm rhyme and, and of course of, of meaning um, that, that aren't explicit in the, in the melody um, yes it's true yeah, yeah. it's sometimes the case that um, adding rhyme can yeah, give a spring to a melody which was there's, there's a tune in Phantom of the Opera called Prima Donna, which is quite harmonically static for about eight bars, I think. You know, it sits on one chord. And there's quite a lot, there, there are little internal, internal rhymes in there that speed it along. Are there certain words you try to ration yourself with from? Um, I know Jeremy Sammons talking about he only allows himself in a, any given translation or libretto, only allows himself one Asian. Rhyme, for example, mm -hmm. A-T-I-O-N. Yes, I'm, I'm um, parsimonious with those as well, yeah. And what you certainly mustn't do is stack a load of rhymes like that up next to each other. Uh, so not just a question of there being one occasion where you get a rhyme like that, but if you have a load in succession, the, the ear just tires of them very quickly and, doesn't, and stops listening. Um, there are certain words that are best issued. Um, just is one. Just is usually a filler. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've got rules like that, but I don't think about them consciously. And when you're working in the other direction with, with your blank stroke lined 
page, mm. but you haven't got a composer's melody in the picture yet. How different is that? I think inevitably you create some kind of melody in your head. Or you borrow one. I know, I know quite a lot of lyricists think of existing tunes and then work around them. And of course the great joy is you can, you can take an existing tune, but then you don't have to be slavish to it. So long as you're um, moderately symmetrical. I tend to be very, very symmetrical, but that's just my particular hang-up. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more liberating to do it like that. When you say symmetrical, are we, are we talking in terms of metrical lines? I'm talking uh, in terms of uh, identical verses, matching, matching pairs or threes. So the lines in each case are the same length and rhyme in the same way. So you come to the second verse and, in a sense, you've imposed the structure that you would have already, you would have had from a melody. So the second verse becomes then an exercise in, in rigour. Do you then go back and change the first verse sometimes? Is sometimes, there a... yeah, yeah. Well, I think inevitably, um, as you devise lyrics, there are lots of blanks that, you, that are, exist in your mind as rhythm, but they don't necessarily exist as words. And I, uh, Tim Rice used to do this, I think. I, I guess still does. Um, Andrew t- t- tells me um, where he would, he would type up some of the lyric and just put in gibberish or blanks because he hadn't quite worked out what was going to be said. Um, which is very brave of him, actually, to release them in that condition because I'd be too fearful that... Um, <laughs> that they'd end up at the 25th anniversary concert exactly, being yeah, signed. Exactly, la, 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 would go in instead of... Um, or, you know, some awful um, dummy version. Uh so we all have these dummy versions in our mind. I don't usually put them down on paper, but um, occasionally I do. Because as a lyricist, um, you are, you're fundamentally involved in the kind of musical exercise, even if there isn't any music there. It's words for music. How do you feel that your musical education has informed you as a lyricist? Or should I say, well, how do you feel that as a composer you're informed as a lyricist? It's proved very, very useful... Uh, it's been an enormous shortcut for me and there are certainly um, things in the scores that I've worked on with Andrew where I couldn't have found my way through them without being able to read music without being able to take the score down and look at each individual line but more generally I think being involved with music can make you very attentive to detail and the way that words work with music close up uh, you know it's 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 difficult to be focused otherwise but there's a downside to it as well which, which is that you can become too analytical and um, you know the more literate you are also the less good your memory tends to be because you don't have to improvise in the same way you don't have to have that stock of stuff sitting in your head how do you build a lyric over the course of a song? You talked about technical matters of rhythmic structure and rhyme, but how do you grow a lyric narratively or emotionally from A to B? Oh, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different rule for each song um, and what the song has to say in the dramatic context. Um, there's this thing you normally have which is called the idea, and the idea might be what... Uh, is often called the hook, but it might not be. It might be a concept. 
Uh, it might be, oh yes, I can relate all of this to colours, or it might be, um, he's saying this and she's saying that, and he misunderstands it every time she says something. You know, you have a concept, basically. That's usually what drives um, the, the song. Uh, but often it is just a, a, a song title, catch the hook. Um, I guess this is the end for us. Okay, that works. Maybe it's going to rhyme. Are we going to rhyme us each time? Okay, we're quite limited because there aren't that many things that rhyme with us. And we're going to end up talking about kicking up a fuss and there's nothing to discuss. And, you know, uh, so maybe we won't rhyme it. Okay, we don't have to rhyme it. You know, as soon as any kind of concept or idea comes to mind, and one should be grateful for those things, you know, um, they're, they're gifts. You know, any any idea if it's workable is a gift. But they have to be tested. They have to be sort of put into the cauldron and, um, you know, is this going to be more, is this going to create more problems than it solves? Is this a good avenue to, to explore? And the quicker one can answer those questions, the, the, the better your technique. You know, that's what technique is really, not having to waste days and days and days pursuing some idea that doesn't really lead anywhere. Um, and being prepared to chuck things out. You know, you're wedded to this pair of lines, because they are so funny and they are so killer and they are so clever, but they don't fit in the song, so throw them out. I mean, they might crop up two years later in another song. You might be able to salvage them. You never know. So I think flexibility is key, but also the, the, yeah, the starting point of the song is an idea. And it, for me, it's usually a structural one, and it might be the title, and it might just be a, a device conceit. Have you ever had an idea that you've been desperate to hold on to for far too long. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I can't think of an example, but definitely, yeah. What was the first time you felt, this is what I want to do? Maybe there wasn't a point, but was what was the moment when you thought lyrics, music, music theatre, writing is what you'd like to pitch your, your being into? When I was at university, I think, um, perhaps a little bit before... And I don't know if I made a conscious decision to do that. I very nearly didn't do it, because by the time I left university, I had this sort of impractical degree in music, and other people were off chasing careers, and I didn't know, really know what to do with myself. So I did a postgraduate year, which is what any vagrant art student does. And in those days, it was much easier to get um, grants. Um, and I spent a year at the Guildhall, somewhat fruitlessly doing doing a... a the composition course, uh, although there were lots of fringe benefits to it. I'm very glad I did it. And I think there I definitely wanted to write uh, musical theatre. But um, I, I, I gradually sort of um, lost momentum with it. So by the time the Phantom Job came along, um, I was on the point of stopping. I was gonna, I'd applied to the BBC for a, for a possible... Um, for an interview, which I never had in the end, um, to um, go into broadcasting. And when Phantom came along, did it feel like a job? It did feel like something that you could... I mean, was it exciting? Was it uh, simply, right, well, well, we'll have a go at this? No, it was pretty, it was pretty um, overawing. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, it kind of felt where I, that it was where I belonged, in that um, so many of the scraps of... Um, learning that I'd picked up along the way um, proved to be appropriate or useful. 
for the, for the job. You know, I've had singing lessons, for instance, which, you know, would have been completely irrelevant and, uh, had I not become a lyricist, you know. Um, you know, I had, I had no chance of becoming a singer. But what I learned about singing was extremely useful to, um, you know, my approach to writing words. Um, I could feel how it would, you know, be to sing those words. And, I, you know, I knew what words would fit the, the, the mouths and throats of the actors. You know, I felt I felt uh, not overconfident, but I did feel at home. And you work with Howard Goodall. Does how does that feeling, in comparison with other collaborations that you had, is there a diff- different rhythm to that? It's a very happy collaboration. Uh, when, whenever I've done it, um, we laugh a lot. Uh, we don't actually on the shows that we've written. We haven't actually worked alongside each other all that much. We've tended to devise the shows and song plot them together um, and then gone our separate ways, sort of. Uh, I was in, with one of them, in fact, I was in Los Angeles quite a lot of the time, so um, I would um, I, I put together the book out there and then, as I was writing the lyrics, I would fax them to him, free email, and um, I'd spend about a week writing a lyric and he'd spend about two hours writing the music, which is very, um, very, very uh, adroit and gifted. These are the, these, the shows, the uh, the Kissing Dance and the Dreaming. Yes. Kissing Dance and the Dreaming. That's right, yes. It was an earlier one as well, um, uh, one act musical that we wrote for um, uh, a Bell's Drama School, the Arts Educational School in Tring. But the less said about that, the better. And we've written um, occasional songs together, including some rejected ones for a 20th Century Fox animated feature called Anastasia. Oh, yes. We were roundly sacked. (laughs) (laughs) It's very interesting, that whole whole Disney-Hollywood thing, pitching songs into a a, a medium which is so commercial and so broad in its its necessary appeal. and, and, and yet it, it very happily embraces old-fashioned musical theatre styles, doesn't it? Yes. When it wants to. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Alan Menken isn't exactly mainstream pop. I guess he's, he's developed a style which is literary enough to, to give the, the songs a, a, a muscle and yet they still seem to fit within, yeah, yeah. within that genre. But I think there, there are lots of... Um, composer John Bacchino I heard at the, at the pheasantry he came over and sang a, a set of his songs and, and talked about his life and he was talking about a, a song which I think got within a squeak of getting um, to be the song from I can't remember which Disney it was it was um, or perhaps it wasn't even a Disney yeah. um, but it kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier about the sort of artfulness or the over-artfulness that one can fall victim to being the beneficiary of a, a good education, a good musical education and, and a, a literate background is actually, yeah. how do you how do you pull that back? How do you let something emerge which is directly emotional uh, when it's so tempting to, to, to fill the space with you know clever complications? Yeah, well it's a question of judgement, isn't it? Um... And um, the temptation that, that one comes to sometimes, but then in, in that you're reliant 
this is why musical theatre is a collaborative form. You're reliant on your collaborators to say, well, I don't think that works, or that doesn't, that, that's too self-conscious, that draws attention to itself. There are too many words. Um, you should be able to do that for yourself, but if not, somebody will do it for you. Uh, you know, I think there's an essential ingredient in musical theatre, music and lyrics, but it's more noticeable in the music, which is, which is vulgarity. Mm. You know, there has to be a certain kind of... Um, you have to paint in bold colours, which doesn't mean that you can't be uh, elegant and judicious, but you have to paint in bold colours. You know, a good example, actually, and not for musical theatre, is Wagner. You know, in some senses, there is no composer more who writes in cruder colours Wagner, you know, but when he wants to, it's music of intense complexity. Um, although I've got my doubts about that, actually, I think it's faux, faux complexity. But of course, musical theatre is a great deal about faux. Mm. Uh, and Verdi as well, you know. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, the same thing's true of um, two composers of musical theatre that I like a lot, Kurt Weill and Steve Sondheim, are people who, who can write with great dramatic flair and, you know, borderline vulgarity, um, but also great um, subtlety and sweetness and wit. Do you have, it's a slightly pop question, but do you have a favourite, either a favourite lyric or a favourite lyricist, somebody that sums up for you the, the quintessence of what it is to be a, a great music theatre writer? Well, the, the lyrics I enjoy best are always ones in foreign languages because I can't, <laughs> <laughs> I can't quite tell how hackneyed or bad they are, mm. you know. Um, and in them, I escape far more than I do in lyrics of my own language. I went through a phase of listening to a huge amount, all really, of Jacques Grell's songs um, because I can't quite, as I say, I can't quite tell how good mm. they are. Do I have a favourite lyricist? Um, no, I just think when, when, when they land, they land. I think most lyricists trip up <laughs> because it's such a, um, a slippery path, you know, that they tre tread and they, it, it's, it's an impossible game to win. So they all trip up at some point and some more than others. And, you know, some of them, we all become, we show ourselves to be annoying or led too much by the lyric and not enough by the thought behind it. In general, you find a lot of this in, in lyric writing, that there's, there's um, too much technique and not enough idea, you know, because we're all in love with the, making the words dance. Mm. I've recently been listening actually to some of the lyrics in chess and some of them are very, very good. Some of the lyrics in chess are very good. They have a really pleasing clarity to them, you know. So they're not poetry and they're not prose. They are lyrics and they are, they sound like the kind of thing you wish you'd said, you know. Uh, but that's personal taste. You know? Well, the idea, as you say, is, is very strong in many of those lyrics. Yeah. He feels, it sounds as though he has something to say or the character has something to say, more importantly. There is a danger, and it's always to be resisted, um, of treading water in a lyric. And that um, that happens partly because um, music takes longer to say what it has to say than words have to say what they have to say. You can say I love you in three words, but um, da, da, da doesn't really do it. So 
the music needs to breathe. And then the lyricist has the problem of how do you say I love you over a hundred syllables instead of three? Uh, and, you know, one answer to that is you come up with some conceit, as I was talking about earlier, and you, you, know, you, you make a shape and it's all very pleasing. But it doesn't necessarily get you nearer to what you want to say. Um, it becomes about it becomes all about how, not about what. Uh, and yes, content should dictate form, but it can't really because if content dictated form, then the forms would be very short in a lot of instances. So, although lyrics should strive to be concise, a lot of the time they can't be. Actually, they've got to be t twice or three times as long as they want to be. And um, the question of success in career terms. Do you have a feeling about that, of, of what, what a career looks like as, to a writer? Well, musicals have become so expensive nowadays to put on that I don't think many of us really produce a canon or a body of work. I mean, we may produce it, but it's unlikely to be put on. So we write and we write and we hope that some of the things will be performed and some of them will run, um, either commercially or, you know, in other ways they'll be picked up and performed um, uh, in the provinces or by schools or you know or, or they'll have some other life but I don't think the, the partnerships of the Gershwins or of Rogers and Hart or Rogers and Hallstein I don't, I don't, we don't really have the equivalent of that now because mm. if Steve Sondheim's latest work is presented for a limited season in a former chocolate factory and doesn't go anywhere from there. You know, there's not much hope for the rest of us. What do you think the answer is? Is it to is it to downsize in these difficult times? Is it what, how do we mm. how does one approach the the industry? Well, I think one should, one should write what one wants, what one feels, and what one feels one can write. Uh, you know, I think it's it's always difficult trying to second guess what the public might want. Um, you know, you then end up the dog chasing its own tail. Um, but it pays to be practical, yes. You know, I, I would write something that could be performed by a small cast in a small theatre with a small band, but could equally be enlarged if it, if it were deemed necessary. But you can have big hits with small bands and small casts, can't you? Mm. Um, aspects which we were yeah well that's not a big hit but you know you can write five guys named Mo and so I don't think there are any rules but you don't help yourself by saying right I'm going to do Lawrence of Arabia with a, with a 500 piece orchestra um, and nothing less will do mm. because you make difficulties for yourself on the other hand of course you do make a splash I think having the right idea is more important you know the, right, the idea that's right for you and that um, excites people and sometimes that, that means having an improbable idea. Um, they made a musical of that, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, Cats was one that yeah. everyone, well, obviously not everyone, some, some canny investors, but... Uh, well, mainly Andrew and Cameron, I think they mm. were the biggest investors. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a few and a few other canny ones, yeah. Um, yes, that doesn't sound good on paper, does it? <laughs> T.S. Eliot's awesome book of Practical Cats. Do you have a lyric that you're proudest of? Uh, no, course. not off the top of my head. Um, sometimes the things that you're proudest of 
are things that don't look very special because they're a solution to a particular problem at a particular time. And you're so grateful that you've come up with this idea that you know it sticks, it sticks in your mind. And then and they're often things that don't, they don't look like anything. Sometimes it's a word, you know. I'm always happy if they laugh. But actually, um, it's not really what I'm known for. I don't, you know. People don't generally say how hilarious my lyrics are. They, they might say, you know, that was that was uh, a lovely song. But, so I, I, I think um, I'm slightly perverse. I think I probably want to be remembered for the, whatever I'm least remembered for. Remembered for surprising people. Mm. I had this dream last night that... Um, I was attending the 25th anniversary of The Phantom of the Opera, which indeed took place over the weekend. And we were in a theatre and Michael Crawford was going out to perform. And Michael Crawford did come on, although he didn't perform, on Sunday. And I said to someone, I was standing in the wings, and I said to somebody, what's Michael going to do? And they said, oh, he's, doing, he's going to play the Congol Violin Concerto. I said, I said, is he? I said, I, I, can he play the violin? Oh yeah, yeah, he's very, very good, very, very good. And this whole conversation took place about you know whether it was a good piece to play, and you mm-hmm. know, and I didn't, I didn't really rate Congol very highly. And oh, what Congol? Is Crawford was then in conversation with me. What what Congol do you know? Well, he told a start and uh, it's a bizarre, nerdy dream yeah. about a composer that I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, so what uh, what concerto did Michael actually play on the night? On the night. <laughs> how how was it? How how was Phantom Twenty Five? It was big. It was uh, you know very very impressive and very adroitly put together and you know, felt grand. How did it feel, sort of thirty years on from the <laughs> conception? Well, I do revisit it occasionally. Yes. So um, you know, it wasn't like. The last time I saw it was 25 years ago. Um, yeah, it's like the so many experiences in life, your initial impressions are always going to be the strongest ones. And so whenever I see the show, I am reminded of the early performances, the early rehearsals, the rewrites, the designs, and all this sort of stuff, the creative process. It's, it's, quite, it's very clear in my mind. At least I think it is. You know, memory can play strange tricks on you, but um, I, I, I think that first impressions stick tremendously, which is why people, you know, see their their, their, their spouses um, as beautiful as the day they met. So I, I'm not saying that I see Phantom of the Opera as beautiful as the day that we met, but I see it, I see it actually in that slightly tattered, eclectic, ragged state that we sewed it together in. You know, I can see the seams, I can see the joins, and I can see all the lyrical infelicities that I wish I could fix now, but they won't let me, because apparently it's become sort of written in stone and enshrined in legend, and I can't change the fucking thing! (laughs) That was part one of the interview with Charles Hart. Join me again for part two, when I ask Charles about how he landed the gig on what was to become the most successful piece of entertainment of all time. 